listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Joey. Let me be the first to welcome you back to our study in the book of Acts. We haven't looked at Acts since, gosh, last year, right? It's been forever. Did, you, did anybody lose your, script, your uh, Acts journal? In the six weeks, anybody willing to event? Okay, yeah, I see you, Silas. Good work. Yeah, well, welcome back to our study in Acts. You know, uh, if you don't remember where we left off six weeks ago, that's okay. I'll recap the story for us, you know, where we are so far in a few minutes. But first, I wanted to remind us why we're studying Acts. We said we're carving out two and a half years worth of Sunday mornings to study the book of Acts. Well, Why? Well, a couple of main reasons, but one thing we've been trying to say over and over again as we've been going through this sermon series is that Acts is the theological history of the Jesus movement, of of the early church. Luke, the author, he's telling a specific story about the Jesus movement, that he leaves out way more than he includes in this book or on his scroll, which was, you know, only so long before he ran out of space and the whole thing just wouldn't hold together anymore. Luke is, is trying to show us how the, the Jesus movement started, how it grew to become a movement that expanded across the entire world and included everyone in it. But he's selective, you know, he only shows us what happens to the north and to the west. We don't get the stories of east and south and the other places that other people go because this is the story and through some of these unique individuals that most clearly communicates what the church is and what the church is supposed to do, which is why we're studying it and studying this early history of the church. Because we're reminding ourselves, you know, how we at 91st and College in 2024 are connected to a 2,000-year-old story that began as a Messianic Jewish minority movement with 120 people in an upstairs room in Jerusalem somewhere, and how it came, started there and came to here. Of course, the beginning of the year is a great time to stop and remind ourselves, you know, why do we do what we do? We're all, uh, maybe most of us are, against, are over it by now, but by and large, our culture sets resolutions at New Year's. Anybody? No one. Yeah, okay, two. All right, three. Great, great. It, according to my watch, it, we are 14 days into the new year. How many of you have stopped going to the gym already? Because <laughs> also, according to my watch, I am 25 miles behind the pace I need to be at in order to hit my goal for the year. And we're only two weeks in. But I keep telling myself, oh, I'll just make it up in the summer, right? When the weather's nicer. Because there's something about every day having to choose, oh, this is still important. There's a bigger reason why I'm going to go do this. Like, it's important for me to be here, to do this thing, to be involved in this thing, to be invested in this thing, especially on a day when it's like still negative two degrees outside. And you all came. Some of you even bundled up your kids and brought them. Like, that's crazy. I woke up this morning thinking some people are going to worship from home. Could I preach from home? Maybe. (laughs) By the time I got here, my driver's door was frozen shut. It's like, man, it is cold. Anyway, enough about the cold. Um, I'm reminded of this whole thing, you know, the new year of an article I remember reading years ago. It was just before the pandemic when a publication called The Atlantic, you might be familiar with it, posted a fascinating article about secular churches. 
These were organizations, groups, gatherings of people, congregations of people who had rejected the faith they grew up with or walked away from following Jesus, but they missed the habit of church. They missed gathering together. They missed singing together. They missed the food, the the fellowship. They missed uh, that sense of, of purpose or belonging. The whole idea of secular churches started in the UK in the early 2010s. Within a few years, the idea had spread to the US, where you would expect New York, California, but also Utah, Texas, Missouri, anywhere there were large populations of sort of disaffected former believers. And so the gatherings would focus on high energy, celebratory messages, uh, full-throated group singing of songs like Living on a Prayer, It was like a concert with a motivational speech, right? Uh, But according to the article, these congregations were in crisis. Uh, They couldn't sustain themselves because they required so much volunteer time and money and administrative skill and, and sacrifice. And none of them could come up with a more compelling reason to be together other than we should be together. And people weren't willing to sacrifice to give of themselves to make something, you know, continue to inconvenience themselves if the point was just being together. Because after a while, you kind of come down to it and you're like, on that particular morning, do I really want to get out of bed? When it's negative two outside and the bed is much warmer than that, do I really want to get up? Is it worth it? It's only worth it if it's about something a whole lot bigger than what I want right now. Which is why I'm glad we're in this story, this part of Acts at the beginning of the year, because in this story, we kind of get this whole summation of the the one thing, the one message, the one person that binds all of us together and calls sacrifice out of us and brings us together as a church, as a church family, because it's so easy to forget. The longer we as a group are together, the easier it is to believe the point of being together is being together. But the point of being together is someone, something, some message so much bigger than us. So let's jump into Acts 10. If you haven't already turned there in the Bibles that are in the seat in front of you, if you've got your journal, it's on page 62. Feels good to get back into this thing. Uh, Let's jump into this story as we see why the church exists and what the church does. And let me start by catching up where we left off, right? It's been six weeks since we've been together. We left off with Peter and Cornelius, these two characters you may remember. Peter, of course, is more well-known. He is the leader of the early church, of this Jesus movement. And he's on this sort of pastoral care journey that's taken him further and further north, up towards Caesarea, the center of Roman authority in Israel. Now, he doesn't know it yet, but there's a soldier there, a guy named Cornelius, who, though he's thoroughgoing, entirely Roman and a Gentile, Luke describes him using almost exclusively Jewish descriptions. He was devout. He feared the God of Israel. He led his household to do the same. He gave alms generously. He prayed regularly. Thoroughly Roman in position, authority, citizenship, and yet described entirely Jewish-like in prayer and practice and piety. And Cornelius, 
God shows up to him, gives him a, a vision, says there's this guy named Peter in a nearby town, send for him. So Cornelius does. At the same time, Peter is in this nearby town and he is experiencing his own vision from God, this sort of finds himself in like a half awake, half asleep, revelatory trance uh, where God gives him this, this vision, sort of a, a, a picture uh, intended to illustrate some, some truth that Peter's struggling to grasp originally, uh, initially until Cornelius' messengers show up and the Holy Spirit impresses on Peter, hey, go with these guys. And, and Peter's starting to think, well, I'm going with Gentiles. I don't know for what purpose, but God is sending me. And I've just had this vision about how I'm not supposed to call anyone or anything you know, tainted or, or unclean. But the average, you know, day-to-day -day Jewish person, when they think of a Gentile, they think of someone who is by nature sinful, cut off, completely cut off from God, unable to come to him on their own. There's a, a wall between God and the Gentiles. And the only way through that wall is to become Jewish. I don't know what's in the back of Peter's mind, though, as he, he goes with these messengers from Cornelius back to Caesarea, where Cornelius lives. Uh, visiting Gentiles, there's a taboo on that. Like, it's not something that's done. But the vision that Peter has is already starting to work on him as he's beginning to put the pieces together. So he arrives and asks Cornelius, why did you send for me? And Cornelius says, well, I, God showed up. I, there was a vision, said, send for you. And you've been nice enough to come, so tell us what God has commanded you to say. Which is every preacher's like worst nightmare and greatest thrill at the same time. Oh, I'm preaching. I didn't know. <laughs> Let's go. So Peter opens his mouth and says, and that's where we left it last year right on the cusp of Peter in an impromptu ad hoc sermon trying to figure out with this group of Gentiles, not hundreds of them, but uh, Cornelius, his family, his friends, this group of Gentiles, Peter's trying to figure out on the spot what part of our gospel message applies to these guys. What part of the gospel applies to these guys? Now, we're 2,000 years after this story, so for us, it's a non-question. But for Peter, at this point, like, this is a big deal. Because remember, the gospel is the good news that the Messiah of Israel has come to free Israel from captivity, from, from slavery, and to usher in an era of peace. Now, peace in this context, it has the, the, that whole Hebrew idea of shalom wrapped up in it. That's this sense of a fully integrated life where I am at peace with God. I'm at peace within myself without warring conflicts and desires. I'm at peace with others, at peace with the material world around me. It's, it's a full and a, and a holistic and a, a multifaceted kind of sense of, of rightness. Right, that, we kind of experience it in glimpses from time to time if we're lucky when it, that moment hits you and you're like, this is what it's supposed to be like. You know, then the glimpse is gone. But the promise of shalom is a promise of an eternity, of it being right. But Peter, I mean, this is what everybody believes, that's for Israel. 
not for the Gentiles. In fact, getting rid of the Gentiles is in large part how Israel experiences this shalom. And sure, Gentiles can be included in that, but they have to become Jewish first. At least that's what Peter believed three days before this, before that vision. So Cornelius says to Peter, hey, we're all here, all of us Gentiles, and God commanded me to send for you so that you would come speak to us what he's commanded you to say. So we're all ears. And Peter starts talking. And you kind of get the sense reading this sermon slash speech, whatever it is, that he's kind of feeling his way as he goes, trying to figure out what part of this does really apply. And he gets there pretty quickly. He starts in verse 34 saying, okay, well, truly, so I understand God shows no partiality. Now, he's just been confronted by a Gentile who's received a vision from God, and he's not questioning the validity of the vision. Obviously, Cornelius knew things about Peter he couldn't have known otherwise. So you say, okay, first, let me put that in context. Well, I understand God doesn't show partiality, That's a quote, by the way, from the Old Testament. It's from this section of Deuteronomy talking about how when God judges, he doesn't doesn't play favorites and pick the rich over the poor or pick the poor over the rich or anything like that. He judges fairly. He shows no partiality. Maybe that's not just about judging, but that's actually like what God is like, that he, he doesn't play favorites get the sense Peter's working this out. Okay, so I'm starting to realize that just because God chose Israel doesn't mean he only works with Israel. He doesn't show partiality, but it, it appears in every nation, anyone who fears him, does what is right, is acceptable to him. You can see the paradigm shifting in his head as he's speaking, as Peter begins to, to see things differently. If God doesn't play favorites when it comes to matters of justice. Maybe he doesn't play favorites when it comes to matters of peace, shalom. Maybe it means anyone of any race or any ethnicity or any nationality who fears God just as Cornelius does and who does what is right, which here for Cornelius means obey that vision God gave you. Listen to what Peter has to say. Anyone, Peter says, anyone who who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. And that last phrase, acceptable to him, it, it doesn't mean automatically saved. It means that just like any Jewish person, any Gentile too can come to God through faith in the Messiah of Israel, in, in Jesus Gentiles, he's beginning to understand, are no longer categorically unclean, in need of first moving towards becoming Jewish in order for God's grace to reach them. They're now acceptable automatically as they are and can come to faith in Jesus. That's why Peter, I think, then immediately jumps into a summary about Jesus's ministry. He goes on to explain more about Jesus, even while assuming that they've heard at least some of this. After all, Caesarea is up there on the northwest coast, about 75 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's actually not too far from Nazareth and Galilee, where a lot of Jesus's ministry happened. Like his, the stories are in the air. 
So he jumps right in with this summary, which begins in verse 37. You guys, you yourselves, I mean, you even know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. You know how God anointed Jesus, the Jesus from Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. And, and we, Peter says, we are, are witnesses of everything he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem itself. It's, for as short as it is, it's the most comprehensive summary of Jesus' life and ministry that we find in the book of Acts. Uh, but even here in my reading of it, I skipped verse 36 uh, on purpose for a moment so we could shift back to it. Verse 36 that prefaces this summary does so with this kind of key theological insight, this shift in thinking that makes what Peter's about to say at all relevant to Cornelius and other Gentiles. So he starts there in, in verse 36, as for the word that, that he, God, sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. Well, you yourselves know how this Jesus, you know, you know everything that happened. There's a lot wrapped up in verse 36. First, there's that reference to, to peace, whole person, whole community, whole creation, shalom, that is the hope of every Jewish person waiting for the Messiah to come. And Peter reiterates that message of peace was sent to Israel through Israel's Messiah, through Jesus, the Jesus from Nazareth. But there's also this parenthetical phrase, it's set off in the ESV translation I'm reading from with parentheses. That's what parentheses do, you know, set off parenthetical phrases. Anyway, short grammar aside there. Inside of those parentheses, this is the key theological insight to, that makes sense of the whole sermon and makes it apply to Cornelius. We're talking about Jesus, the one from Nazareth, the Messiah. Oh, by the way, he is Lord of all. He's the Lord of all. And by calling Jesus Lord, Peter is equating him with God himself, the God that Cornelius worships, the God that Cornelius fears. He's saying, look, the, the God that you worship has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. He calls him Lord, and by calling him Lord of all, Peter's claiming that because Jesus is God of all, he has authority over all and can offer peace to all, Jew or Gentile alike. See, if Jesus isn't the Lord of all, if he isn't also the God over all, then the story of his life and death has no relevance for you and for me, unless we're part of the people of Israel. But because he's not only Israel's Messiah, but the Lord of all, then the story of his life and his ministry and his death and what he did on that cross and what he did by rising again, that means something for anyone for everyone, whether they're, they're Jewish or not. 
So keep that in mind as we jump back into the summary. Now he's telling to Cornelius, I know the story that, that you've heard of as being from the Jews for the Jews. Well, that actually means something for you. We pick it back up in verse 39 as he brings it to its climax. They, they, they put this Jesus, they put him to death by hanging him on a, on a tree. And, and by describing the cross as a, as a tree, he's echoing words from Deuteronomy again. You know, that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed, except unlike anyone who's hung on a tree and cursed, this one, God rose again, raised him from the dead on the third day. Doesn't normally do that for cursed people, but he raised him again on the third day, made him appear, not to everyone and anyone, Peter says, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Us who, who ate and, and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Like it was a real resurrection. He ate lunch. Okay? It wasn't just a, an image or an angel or an appearance. He really rose from the dead. And having risen from the dead, then this theme of Jesus' universal authority comes through again. Having risen from the dead, he commanded us, Peter says, the, the leaders of the church, to preach to the people, to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, which is everyone. Those are the only two categories. He's the judge of all in the same way he's the Lord of all, he's the, the judge of all. And, and he rounds out this sermon, say, hey, this Jesus, this Messiah is the one, all the prophets said this one would come, that, that anyone, if he really is the Lord of all, then anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Anyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness from sins. Now, I don't know if you've noticed uh, so far, I, I didn't notice until I read it somewhere, uh, almost every sermon in the book of Acts is interrupted before the preacher can finish. I don't think Peter was intending to finish right here, but was going to go on to explain, and this is how you put your faith in him. Uh, but almost every sermon is interrupted, either by people saying, well, what do we do in light of what you're preaching, or by God himself showing up and interrupting, which is what happens here. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, while he's still preaching, he's only on page three of his notes, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard in quite a dramatic way that interrupted the rest of the sermon. Now, Luke doesn't narrate every step of this for us explicitly. Actually, the further on we go in Acts, kind of the less and less detail Luke includes, at least when things happen and we kind of understand the way that things tend to happen. So he doesn't narrate it for us explicitly, but as, as Peter is speaking to Cornelius and his household, as he's describing Jesus as the Lord of all, the judge of all, the one offering peace to all, one by one, these Gentiles are becoming convinced of the truth of what Peter's saying that peace with God is available to them because of Israel's Messiah, even though they're not part of Israel. 
but the Messiah is for all of them, and they're convinced, and, and they begin to believe in Jesus and salvation in his name, and the Holy Spirit indwells them in a disruptive way that interrupts the sermon, speaking in tongues, extolling God. What exactly all that means, I'm going to deal with and cut for time, because we don't have time this morning. But they're convinced, and they believe in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit indwells them, which absolutely has to happen for us to understand that this is a huge turning point in the history of the church. So the first time we see men and women who are thoroughgoing Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. Because for anyone who might be suspicious that Gentiles can be included in the family of Jesus, the family of Israel's Messiah, without first becoming Jewish, in fact, there are men here with Peter watching this whole thing suspiciously, going, I don't know if this is exactly how it's supposed to work. But the presence of the Holy Spirit is proof. This is from God. Every time we see the gospel message expanding into a, a new cultural category or a new ethnic category, we get evidence from the Spirit of God that this is where God is going and his church is just following along. Peter is just following where God is leading. You can imagine what would have happened if Peter had, had preached this to them and without this indwelling of the Spirit in a, in a visual way, Peter had said, well, and now you all who have you know, responded in faith, let's, let's baptize you. It would have been very easy to say, Peter, you're running ahead. You're going too far. And so the Spirit shows up first, and then Peter says to his companions, verse 47, I don't see how anyone could withhold water from baptizing these people. I mean, they've received the Holy Spirit just like us. Like, I don't know what's going on here, and I don't think now's the right time to stop and have a theological debate about how all of this fits together, and what does this mean for that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and how does all this work? He's like, look, I see the Holy Spirit. It's incontrovertible. We need water. These guys need to be baptized, because if they have been baptized with the Spirit, then they also need to be welcomed into this family, made part of this church, made part of the family of Jesus. So he commands, bring water, let's baptize these guys, and then he stays with Cornelius and his family for, I don't know, it says some days, many days, however long that is, uh, beginning to teach them and instruct them and in what it means to be part of the family of Jesus. Even as he himself is trying to figure this out, how does all this work together? I mean, and this, this is a huge turning point in the history of the church. Now, from our side of the story, 2,000 years later, it doesn't seem like all that big of a deal, probably because most of us are Gentiles, and most of us have taken it for granted. Well, of course, Jesus is for everyone. But that wasn't always the case, or at least it wasn't always believed to be the case. The church had to move and shift and rethink Following the Spirit of God means, wow, this message goes to all. We know this is significant because Luke takes the space to tell us the exact same story three times, back to back to back. If you want to challenge as a pastor, it's like preaching the same sermon three times. 
back to back to back. But Luke, he doesn't have, you know, an infinite scroll here. Like at some point, this thing ends and becomes too big to haul around. But he takes the space to tell us three times in detail what's happening here because I mean, this causes so much controversy at the church-wide level, and there's implications for multi-ethnic and multicultural fellowship, and there, there's conflict that starts, and there's a chance that the church is going to split and rip itself into two, and all of that is hugely important stuff that Pastor Jeff's going to talk about next week. Because this week, I just want to focus us in on the individual level. Because every time, of course, every time the gospel in the book of Acts moves into a new cultural category or new ethnic category, it doesn't just move to a people group, it moves to people, uh, to persons, to individuals, Cornelius and his family, his friends, his household. So this passage isn't here just so we can ask, well, what does this story mean for the church? But what does this story mean for me? For us. And that depends on where you already are with Jesus, where you are in relationship to Jesus. Because there's a full spread. You may be all the way over here on one end where you're suspicious of Jesus, suspicious of his claims. Maybe more accurately, you're suspicious of his church. Like Jesus sounds great, but have you met some of his followers? We're not always doing that great of a job. Then again, when has anyone, whether you're a follower of Jesus or any other philosophy or way of life, when has, when has any of us ever lived 100% entirely consistent with what we say we believe? Right? Followers of Jesus are no different from the rest of the world. We too can get off track. So if you're suspicious of Jesus or suspicious of his followers, then investigate. Get to know this Jesus. Get to know us. You might be surprised. You might find there's something in a movement that has persisted for 2,000 years, even as it's faced hardship and, hardship and difficulty and persecution all around the world. Uh, so if you're suspicious of Jesus, investigate. If you've already moved past suspicion into interest, well, maybe it's time to consider the claims of Jesus, and what Peter's communicating here. Uh, you know, I don't know what brought you here this morning uh, or got you tuned in online or what has you listening to this podcast afterwards, but maybe someone invited you, maybe someone shared this with you, maybe you felt compelled for some reason uh, to be here on this freezing cold day and faith was the closest church you could get to before your doors froze. I don't know. But you're here or you're listening because you're searching, you're trying to find something that, that's missing. The world seems to fall into, into one of two buckets. There, there's those of us who have tried everything and we've gotten everything we worked for and we got to the end and we're still not happy or satisfied. And then there's those of us on the other end who, who have tried everything and nothing has worked. And we're tired of trying to build a life for ourselves that just keeps falling apart. And I said there's two, but maybe it's more realistic to say that most of us are in, be in between. We've gotten some of what we thought would make us happy and it didn't, and some things have fallen apart and we still don't know how to, how to make all of that work together, but it, it feels like something is missing. There's something more and we just can't figure out what it is. 
And if that's you, I think you're a lot like Cornelius in this story. God is already pulling on your heart somehow through the emptiness or the lack of satisfaction or joy. Or he's pulling on you through your longing for something more. And God is pulling you into a place where he can speak to you the same words that Peter spoke to Cornelius. Everyone, anyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins. You've heard the message of peace through Jesus. Believing in him brings the forgiveness of sins that is the beginning of experiencing peace. Which means, if that's you, like today is the day for you to, to believe in Jesus, to admit before God that you don't just live in a broken world, but that you, like all of us, you do your fair share to contribute to the brokenness and the suffering of the world. In, in church world, we call that sin adding to the brokenness of the world around us, which means you, just like me, just like all of us, are a sinner. And when we admit, when you admit, I'm a sinner and believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave in your place in order to forgive your sin, then then you too begin to experience new life in Jesus, begin to experience peace between you and God, and little by little, Little by little now and fully in the world to come, peace within yourself and with one another and with the world around us. So if if that's you and you're interested, you're trying to figure out what claim Jesus makes on your life, if you've come to faith in Jesus today or or recently, reach out to us. Like That's why we're here, to help help you begin to grow into new life in Jesus' family. And for the rest of us, not suspicious, not interested, but, but invested. Those of us who are already believers in Jesus, already part of God's family, we have to ask ourselves, are we growing? How are we growing in our understanding of who God is and how his family behaves and what our role is in all of this? Because I'm struck again by, by these, these guys on the sidelines, the men that Peter brought with him, the guys who are said to be part of the circumcision party. Doesn't sound like a party I want to go to, but there it is. Now, Pastor Jeff's going to explain in more detail next week what that means, the circumcision party, but these are the guys on the sidelines, suspicious. Like, what is, what is going on here? These people we're talking to are categorically outside of God's grace. And yet God seems to be moving here somehow. So what's our role in this whole big reason we're together? See, wherever you are with with Jesus, suspicious, interested, invested, uh, we can't not respond to his message of grace and peace somehow. If you're suspicious, investigate. If you're interested, he invites you to put your faith and your trust in him. If you are invested already, then we build our lives, our habits, our weekly gathering together around the worship of God. This is why we don't just stay in bed when it's negative two degrees outside and very warm under the sheets and under the covers. 
But instead, we, we build our lives around something bigger, our worship of God, our growing in relationship with him and with one another, our serving of the good around us, and, and our going with the message of the gospel to those who have never heard it. Because being part of Jesus' family means we're, we're the church, and this is what the church does. We live out our calling in front of those who are suspicious. We explain the message of Jesus and share it with those who are interested. We encourage the growth in one another, those who are invested. See, the thing that gets us out of bed on an ice-cold morning isn't our own need for uh, you know, sing-alongs or to hear an uh, inspiring message or, or because it's easier to avoid the people in our homes by coming here. Or it's easier to stay home in order to avoid the people here. We don't get together because of our individual preferences for I need a little this or I need a little that or this church has the workout routine that's going to finally get me those abs I've always wanted. We are here because of something bigger. We are here because of Jesus who has brought us into the family, formed us into a community, and given us a direction in which we go together. Can't think of a better way to start the year than reminding ourselves who we are and why we're here as we live out his calling on us together. So let's pray. Father, we pause again at the end of a, a, an attempt at, at understanding, explaining who you are, what you have done in your son Jesus through, uh, through him and in us and for the world around us. We pause again because we, we realize again, like there's nothing in us that makes us worthy of being part of this story, of being part of what you're doing in the world. There's nothing that makes us uniquely qualified or, or specially able to receive your grace. We were all on the outside and unworthy of consideration, and yet you chose to love us anyway. And so, Father, as we gaze together on the glory, the goodness of Jesus to us and his sacrifice on our behalf, not just his pardon saying we may go, but his, his welcome that we may come to you. Together, Father, form us into a people that lives your story of redemption to those around us who are longing for something more and can't find the more that answers their deepest need. Father, fill us that we may be part of the filling of others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.